Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. David Petker talks with Dr. Richard Orlandi about his international consensus statement on allergy and rhinology, chronic rhinosinusitis. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Fiagon ENT Navigation. The new Fiagon Cube 4D provides easy-to-use navigation in a compact yet highly robust system. A new groundbreaking feature includes a touchless registration technique that utilizes point cloud technology to capture the entire surface of the patient's face during the registration process. With one click of a button, you can achieve superior registration accuracy all in under 20 seconds. Please visit www.fiagon.com to find out more about the new Cube 4D system and the latest groundbreaking navigation technology from Fiagon. Hello and welcome to another episode of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host, David Petker, coming from the Medical College of Wisconsin, and with me today is Dr. Richard Orlandi from the University of Utah, and we're going to discuss what it takes to put together the international consensus on allergy and rhinology for chronic rhinosinusitis. Richard, welcome. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, full disclosure, I am an author and an associate editor, so I know the answer to a lot of these questions, but I'm going to ask you anyway and and hope that we can give some insight to the listener as to what it takes to put together something like this. Tell me what's new in the 2021 version of the ICARS chronic rhinosinusitis. Well, David, new for 2021 since the 2016 version, there's quite a bit. I guess the most important thing to know is that in the field of rhinosinusitis, there have been 7,000 additional publications since we did the ICAR document in 2016. And so that gave us quite a bit more evidence to look at. So that's the most important thing. There's quite a bit that's updated. Really nearly every one of the, or actually every one of the over 140 sections were uh, updated. So that's, I think, the first most important. Next, we looked at some specific things on pathophysiology and CRS. We looked at, uh, for instance, occupational environmental triggers, things we didn't look at in 2016. We did quite a bit more with CRS treatment, really went in-depth in biologics, in probiotics, in mucolytics, in herbal medications, furosemide, capsaicin, a lot of things that we didn't really spend as much effort on or as much time on in the 2016 version. And then, like the 2016 version, we did quite a bit in the area of surgery. I think there are nearly 50 sections just on surgical evidence-based medicine, and in those areas, we spent more time on steroid eluting implants, balloon dilation, mucosal preservation versus nasalization, and extent of frontal surgery. So those are some of the new topics we added. There's also quite a bit more in the way of quality metrics, cost effectiveness, CRS disease measurement. And I think most importantly, we, at the very end of this, clearly CRS in the context of covid was a very big topic for all of us. And we added a quite updated section I'm actually quite proud of at the end of the process. And lastly, there's a lay summary that's new, suitable for patients. It's a one-page document that is suitable for patients to post on a website or or hand out to patients or put in your waiting area where they can understand what uh, rhinosinusitis is. So there's quite a bit that's new. Yeah, it sounds like it. 7,000 publications since the last version. That's hard to comprehend. 
Wow. It's hard to review, um, too, right? I mean, yeah. it's, but it's, <laughs> and obviously there's varying quality on those, but there's been quite a bit that's been done in our field in the last five years, and that says a lot about what our field is doing. It, it continues to climb. We're above 1,400 publications per year in just rhinosinusitis throughout the literature. Yeah, it's amazing when I think back about, I've been doing this as long as you have, but when I think back to my residency in the early 2000s, the quality of the research and the publications that are done now is just light years ahead of uh, of what it was. You know, if you had seven patients, that was a review on whatever topic it was, and, and you could almost always get it published in something, but it's really blossomed. It's neat to see. For the listener, give us an idea of how this type of thing comes to be. You know, so how does it go from the idea, whoever it may be, the Tim Smith as the editor of IFAR or, or whomever, calls you and says, Richard, we want another ICARS CRS edition. How does it go from that to print? What what are the behind-the-scenes steps? You know, obviously people have to write the sections and those sorts of things, but how do you come up with the topics? How do you decide what to keep from last time, what to add, that type of thing? That's a great question, David. Uh, It actually, I mean, honestly started – Right at the conclusion of the 2016 document, after we all took a deep breath, you start thinking about what you didn't have, what you missed, and what, as the evidence starts coming out of those 7,000 articles, what needs to go into the next document. And so this is a conversation that I've been having with David Kennedy and then Tim Smith, the editors-in-chief of the journal, and what needs to change. And you look at colleagues that are doing similar documents in other areas, I think one thing that was very helpful to see what other people did with other topics in the international consensus statements on allergy and rhinology, so in allergic rhinitis and skull base and other areas, and really see, gosh, what are the improvements that they've made? So it's kind of a quality improvement, continuous quality improvement sort of a process. You start putting together topics about a year and a half ahead of publication. So that would have been kind of late 2018, early 2019. And then I I pulled together Tim Smith and Todd Kingdom to be my co-editors, really look at all the topics, what are we missing, what needs to be expanded, how many words per topic, because you could just go on forever writing about so much of this literature. New this year, as you know, as you mentioned, we decided to work with associate editors, and we have seven wonderful associate editors in addition to yourself, Ben Blyer, Adam DeConde, Amber LeWong, Zach Soler, Kevin Welch, and Sarah Wise. Again, worked kind of did our first pass and then worked with you all to say, hey, you know, what does this table of contents, so to speak, look like? And then we go through the literature and identify subject experts based on publication records over the last five to ten years. And we identified about 90 principal authors. And then they picked 65 consultant authors to work with to write the topic. So we assign the topics to each of those 90, make some changes based on their comfort level, and then kind of let loose the Kraken at that point, and people develop the the topic based on the evidence-based with recommendation uh, process that Luke Rudnick and Tim Smith put together in 2011. You have deadlines, and you heard the cats over the course of the year uh, (laughs) through 2019, and especially with COVID hitting us into 2020. You have, you know, the iterative process of uh, that people are familiar with, a first reviewer, a second reviewer, sometimes a third reviewer, 
blinded to go through the topic and then unblind the review and resolve any differences with the first author. That process takes quite a bit of time, and Hallie Jones is our assistant who helped us with this document. It's an enormous amount of logistical keeping track of all of that. We then put the document together. You stitch the whole thing together. That's probably the hardest part to make sure there's no internal inconsistencies and everything matches up. Dr. Kingdom, Dr. Smith, and I reviewed that, and then we turned it over to you as editors and the rest of the authors. Everybody reviewed the document, went through a couple of rounds, and we all finalized the document just a few weeks ago. And it is now uh, available on the Wiley website in a kind of a raw PDF form that will be coming out early in 2021. So there's a couple things you mentioned that I really wanted to point out. You know, I think a lot of times people will read documents like this and say, okay, well, who are these experts, these so-called experts? You know, who, who, who are these people? And so, so you found individuals who had published on the subject and asked those individuals to write the subjects, correct? Am I saying that coherently? Yeah, that's correct. We, we literally went through and counted up numbers of publications because at some point, I mean, this is the hardest part. There's so many talented people out there, but you have to draw a line somewhere. And we did that based on publication record, largely. Sometimes there were people that had fewer publications, but were really an expert on one particular facet of, of rhinosinusitis. And, and so, you know, there's some, there's some judgment that takes place in there. And then the second thing I wanted to point out, the iterative process. So, and you mentioned this, and I think many people are familiar with that, but give us a little bit more insight into the iterative process. And, and yes, that's been discussed, but you pointed out the fact that one individual will author the section and then it's blinded to two additional authors, correct? Right. That's correct. Let's say, for example, if you had written one of the topics, David, which you did on some of them, maybe with a co-author, maybe with a, con a consultant author, and then we would take that and we would send it to a reviewer, another expert in that area. And then that reviewer uh, would look at that and, and, and you would have done an extensive literature review for the topic and, you know, systematic review and all those sorts of things using the grade criteria. And then the reviewer would look that over and make sure it was complete. There were, it was factually accurate. They agreed with the recommendations. And then if there were any changes, and often there were, because each of us is, is never perfect, right, as an individual. So that's really the strength of this is you have a second eyes, set of eyes looking at it. Mm -hmm. Then any changes from that reviewer, that would go back to you. It would be unblinded at that point. So they didn't know that you were the writer, but now you both know that one is the reviewer, one is the author, and you develop a consensus of what that particular topic should be. That's then repeated. It goes to a second reviewer, again, blinded, not knowing who the the first reviewer and the author were. That basically, it makes it such that we're not intimidated to review something that someone else wrote, right? And so if some world expert that we all are in awe of writes something, we may be less inclined to review it stringently. And so this way, with it being blinded, we're a little, I think, a little bit more objective. And then again, it's unblinded the second time. And all three, or in this case, in sometimes case, all four, the consultant author, the principal author, the first reviewer, the second reviewer, would all come together. So you have at least four people. You also have an associate editor who's been looking over the process, sometimes a third reviewer if, if consensus was difficult to reach. And there were a few sections where one of the senior editors would come into play as well. So there were some topics that had seven experts looking at it, 
define the best available evidence and what the recommendations coming out of that are. It's a very robust process. Yeah, I think that, you know, and I wanted to stress that because I think you're absolutely right. By having it blinded, people are far more objective as opposed to just rubber stamping the section because they know some bigwig or well-known person wrote the section. So I think that's great. My next question for you, Richard, is how do you envision this to be used? So do you see this as sit down on a Saturday afternoon and cover to cover, read it, or is this more like an encyclopedia where you say, what's the data on, you mentioned capsaicin, what's the data on capsaicin, and you flip through the document until you find that and you get your question answered? Yeah, that's a great question. David, I think it's really more the latter. Having sat down and read this cover to cover multiple times, it's not the most gripping novel. <laughs> and so it, uh, reading it on a Saturday afternoon, it's kind of more like reading it for a week. It's just to give folks an idea, it's at least on the PDF in Word format, it's just under 700 pages single spaced. So now there's a lot of tables and so forth. But I think it's really more what you described as, hey, what's the What's the data on CR, like on capsaicin in, in CRS or on Lasix in CRS with polyps? And that's one of the things that we really improved that others had done, I think, much better than the first iteration was a much improved table of contents so that it's easy to find a topic and pull that open. And most of the topics are a page or two, a page and a half in the journal within a evidence table and, and of course, the references at the end. So I think that we tried to keep it consumable in that format. So... I think that people are going to sit down, get the get the really not just high level, but you know, it goes in depth, but it's it's short, it's consumable in one sitting, and then the references are available if people want to pursue the topic in depth. There are over 2,500 references, hundreds of tables, evidence tables that really go through in much more detail. But I think it's more encyclopedic than uh, a novel. Any plans for translating to other languages? In discussion, we were able to translate into Mandarin last time, and I'd really like to see that happen again. I'd like this to be much more accessible to really everyone worldwide. That's a very laborious process, as one might imagine. Again, sitting down to translate, much less write to translate something like this can be very difficult, and it's not just any person that can do it. You need to have that scientific knowledge. But I would like to see that again so that so many of our colleagues across the, the world speak great English, as you and I know, as we've traveled. And yet to be able to read something in your native language is much more comfortable. Well, I tell you what, this is really a Herculean effort. And so thank you to you and thank you to Haley Jones, who helped coordinate this and answered many of my questions over the past several months and really to all the authors. So if you haven't had a chance to take a look at it, please do so. It's on the IFAR website, and you can see that article as well as all the new articles that are coming out in IFAR. So, Richard, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, David. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Myology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.